0: Hello there. Welcome to Faith and Capital. I'm your host, Chase Tibbs. I've got some great news for you, folks. This is only episode two, which means we are just getting started. Thanks to all those who subscribed on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, and Stitcher, to everyone who liked our Facebook page and followed Faith and Capital on Instagram and Twitter, to those who passed the word along this week to a friend in your church or on social media about the program, and to those of you who reached out and shared your thoughts on faith in capitalism and simply what's going on in your life. It is good to know that there are others out there who are interested in thinking about capitalism through the lens of their Christian faith. We are not alone. If you think our faith communities should be dialoguing about capitalism in the economic and political dimensions of our lives, help spread the word. Today, we're going to continue our discussion on the way in which capitalism uniquely organizes the relationships of our workplaces, those places, if not today, at some point in our lives we will have to spend the majority of our waking hours. We'll start off by looking at a story in the book of Exodus about a people's liberation, Because I think this story might be able to help us identify the particular way in which the system of slavery organizes its master-slave relations around the process of production and distribution of profits—the process we briefly mentioned last week—which we can then compare to capitalism's unique way of organizing its employer-employee relations around the process of production and distribution And, in the end, we'll return to the story of the Exodus and see if there is anything there that could speak to what God's liberative and restorative work might look like for us today. Alright, Scripture, Slavery, Capitalism, Liberation. In the book of Exodus, there's this oft-referred-to story about an enslaved people of Israel being liberated from Pharaoh's top-down power in Egypt. And while this story has been interpreted perhaps in a gazillion different ways, today I want us to read it through a class lens. And so we'll be looking at how each class distinctly relates to the process of producing and distributing goods and profits. And before you say, Now Chase, the system of slavery is not equivalent to free market capitalism. I would actually agree with you. The differences are helpful for us to name if we're going to really get at the complexities of capitalism, but might there be some similarities in which we're unaware of? Let's table this and return to it after we have a chat with Farah. And uh, by the way, I've had Farah, Farah, oh baby, let my people go. Stuck in my head ever since I started mapping out this episode, and I'm so glad we can now, together, share that burden in solidarity. Okay, our story begins in Exodus 1, with a little bit of anxiety building up in the big old boss. In chapter 1, 9 through 11, Pharaoh says, Look, the Israelite people are more numerous and more powerful than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them. Or they will increase and, in the event of war, join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. And deal shrewdly they do. Pharaoh extends their working hours and worsens their working conditions so that he can continue to control and possess their labor power. In chapter 2, 23-25, the author tells us, The Israelites groaned under their slavery and cried out. Out of the slavery, their cry for help rose up to God. God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God looked upon the Israelites, and God took notice of them. It seems to me that God isn't concerned about Pharaoh's anxiety of losing his power over others. God isn't concerned with the loss of profits, Pharaoh's slave-based enterprise would know. Apparently, God is concerned with the suffering and exploitation of the enslaved workers. And so, the God of the disempowered laborers gets to work. Moses and Aaron are sent to organize and assemble the elders of the Israelites. And after they and the people are all on board, Moses and Aaron head on over to Pharaoh's corporate office and... Basically, they tell him that they want to put on a festival and worship their god for three days. Probably just like the ones we went to growing up in youth group. But in chapter 5, verse 4, we read, The king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their work? Get to your labors! Pharaoh continued, Now they are more numerous than the people of the land, and yet you want them to stop working? Essentially, their being worked by their masters and by Pharaoh was preventing them from worshiping God, from living faithfully to God. And as we talked about in episode 1, one way we could think about faith would be to say that to live faithfully to God is to live out and embody God's desires and concerns, which apparently are in tension with Pharaoh's desires and concerns. If one prescribes to the belief that God ultimately desires our relational well-being, then we are faithful to, we worship God when we live in right relationship to others, ourselves, and all creation. But big boss Pharaoh ain't having it. And that's because stuff like dignity, mutuality, and living in right relationship would only threaten the system that allows him to govern all this labor. Pharaoh, Pharaoh, here it comes. The god of the disempowered people of Israel, this mysterious I am who I am, starts plaguing and destroying the materials and spaces that, on one hand, are owned by the masters, but, on the other, are used by the slaves during their production of things for Egyptian trade and for the building of grand cities like Pithom and Ramses. Many today refer to these materials as the means of production. The land, raw materials, tools, and machines needed in order to produce the new commodities that are sold and such. God attacks things like the water the workers are supposed to use for the development of Pharaoh's cities. God destroys the fields that produced the food which was then traded with neighboring empires, distributed to fellow Egyptians as to ensure their allegiance to Pharaoh, and distributed to the slaves to make sure they had enough strength to give Pharaoh another day's hard work. God kills all the animals that were essential for the sustainability of Pharaoh's slave-based enterprises. And all of these plagues render the land unusable, unproductive, and unprofitable. After all this, God even murders the firstborn of every household in Egypt, those who were in line to become the next generation of dominators and rulers of this powerful empire. And finally, under the pressure of God's plagues and the organizing of Moses and Aaron, Pharaoh stands down. Of course, as we all know, Pharaoh has a last-minute change of mind, but his army ends up chasing his lost labor power to their own drowning death. At the end of the story, the god of the enslaved Israelite workers has led them out from their disempowerment and away from the exploitative class structure of slavery. As we uh, mentioned in episode one, there are lots of ways people think about class the most common in the U.S., usually referring to various levels of income or wealth. Still, others have said class is more about the political distribution of power. And while both of those issues are incredibly important and not at all unrelated, when I talk about the class structures of specifically our workplaces, our neighborhood grocery stores, the businesses and enterprises that line the streets of our towns and cities, I'm referring to the particular way in which businesses organize their relationships around the process of producing and distributing profits. The people of every organization, including you if you work somewhere, are divided into groups and then assigned group-specific tasks pertaining to the process of production and distribution of surpluses, which is just another word for profits. For example, think about the class structure of the system of slavery. Slavery is constituted or defined by the relationship between masters and slaves. You can't have a system of slavery without both relational components doing what each part of the system is supposed to do. And for us to understand what they're supposed to do in a slave-based enterprise as distinct classes we can look at how masters and slaves uniquely relate to the two-sided process of production and distribution. So, a few questions we might ask is, in slavery, who labors and works with all the means of production, the tools, materials, machines, and land, in order to create new goods or services? Who owns or possesses all the needed materials for producing the new product? Who owns the newly created profits, and who decides how the newly created profits will be distributed? Finally, in a system of slavery, who directs the process of production and distribution from start to finish? Well, for one, we know that the enslaved human being is coerced or forced to work. I mean, that's one huge reason why they're enslaved in the first place, for their free labor. And as property themselves, everything they are in relationship to, from the clothes they wear and the roof over their head, to the materials, tools, and land they work with, is owned by their master. So, it seems that masters exclusively own all of the means of production, which, in slavery's case, includes the enslaved human being. We also know that masters decide the what, where, and how of production, and because masters own both the materials used to produce the new products and make all the important decisions on the production side of the enterprise, the master legally owns all the fruits created by the slave's labor and decides how those profits will then be distributed. Whether the commodity being produced is cotton, salt, cloth, sex, chicken, or strawberries— The master governs and directs the slave-based enterprise from start to finish. Clearly, in slavery's way of structuring the two classes in relation to the process of production and distribution, the producers of the profits are excluded from distributing the profits. The workers are not the directors of the enterprise. And this is the class structure of a slavery-based business just like the one in our biblical story. But what about the organization of relationships that make a capitalist business capitalist? Building upon our discussion in episode one, in which we identified the two fundamental relational components of every capitalist enterprise, group one as the producers or workers, and group two as the directors who appropriate and distribute the collectively produced profits, let's return to the relationships of our own and our community's workplaces. To do so, we'll look at the way in which capitalism organizes the two groups of producers and directors in relation to the everyday process of production and distribution. And to give it some context, I want us to imagine a shoe factory. Pretend we're pulling back the ceiling of a shoe factory and looking down into it. For one, We can see hundreds of workers in this single shoe factory. But the company actually owns several factories, so in total we're talking thousands of employees collectively making shoes for the corporation. All these individual employees here have sold their labor power to the shoe corporation for wage and salary values that are less than the value they together create. But you know what else belongs to the employer? All the means of production. Every nut and bolt, every machine and material, every square inch of this shoe factory and the land it sits on are exclusively owned by the major shareholders of the corporation. And since the labor power of the workers and the materials of production belong to the employer, all the profits, the fruits created by the workers' collective labor, now belong to the few owners of the shoe factory as well. As you are looking down into the capitalist shoe factory, let's say it's the shoe factory your friend from small group works at, does each individual employee at least have a say in what they will produce, where they will produce it, or how they will produce it? Nope. Do they have any real say in how all the profits made possible by their labor will be distributed? Sorry. Those decisions are exclusively made by the small group of employers, who direct and govern the shoemaking enterprise from beginning to end. It seems as though the power of the workers is constrained, while the power of the employers is enabled. Simply put, the power of the many at our friend's shoemaking workplace is concentrated into the hands of those wealthy enough to afford both the necessary materials needed for production and the necessary labor power needed to produce the shoes. Just as in a system of slavery, in a capitalist enterprise, the producers of the profits are excluded from participating in the distribution of those profits. The workers are excluded from directing the business. And another similarity between the two unique systems of slavery and capitalism is that both class structures are, by definition, exploitative both the slave and the employee produce more value than what they actually get back. They produce profits beyond what they receive in return. And while employers do pay employees agreed upon wages for their labor, the wage values and paychecks workers receive week to week are always less than the value their work actually produces. Which is to say that, only a portion of the employee's day produces value equivalent to the agreed-upon paycheck. It could be half a day, a quarter, even less, while the rest of their working day is unpaid, thus producing extra profits for their employer. Now, having said this, the major difference between slavery and capitalism is that slaves themselves, not just of their labor, Are coercively owned and possessed by masters. And while the labor of an employee working in a capitalist shoe factory is possessed by their employer, the workers themselves are not coercively owned. In theory, they can walk away. Although, for many abroad and in the U.S., the lines between forced labor, debt peonage, and the free choice of work doesn't seem all that clear. For example, Think about how working class folk like you and me don't actually have a choice not to participate in the market. Where do you and your family buy your food and your clean water, the energy to heat or cool your house, the roof over your head, your transportation to work, and any other necessities for staying alive, the consumer market. Where do you sell your labor to make the wages you need to then buy those necessities for you and your loved ones? The labor market. Workers and their families depend upon wages, and since the mid-1970s increasingly on indebtedness, so that they can purchase things like food, housing, health care, education, and yes, even an enjoyable meal or two out a week, or a memorable family vacation to the mountains or the beach. But for workers, it's sell your labor or lose your house and your car. Sell your labor or never be able to seek an education beyond our underfunded 12th grade schooling, the higher education we're told we need in order to access higher paying jobs. And for the nearly 50% of the U.S. population who is either living in poverty or near poverty conditions, yes, half of all U.S. Americans, It's sell your labor or you and your family go hungry, or worse. But the fact that 40 million U.S. Americans, that's one out of every eight, including 12 million children, are food insecure, while our unemployment rate hovers around 4%, seems to suggest that, apparently, individually working several jobs or a household collectively working 90 to 120 hours a week doesn't even guarantee people will have access to affordable, healthy food, or even cheaply, highly processed food, let alone health care, affordable housing, education, etc. Nor does there seem to be any real freedom in the choice of work for an increasing portion of U.S. Americans, there's a reason why folks of all ages making lower and middle wages don't simply quit their job, or jobs. They're working right now for higher wages and better working conditions, better pay, benefits, and workplace respect. All things many of us could really use. It's because they can't. Perhaps the free market isn't as free as the multi-millionaires and billionaires their economists, politicians, and media outlets say it is. Having briefly reflected on the workplace relationships and class structures of slavery and capitalism, let's wrap up our time together by returning to the story of the Exodus. Many would say that the Exodus story is a story of liberation, but the question I want us to ask is, what do we mean by liberation? What happens in the story? when liberation occurs? Does the one class of enslaved workers experience liberation alone and in isolation? Or would you say that both classes, the slaves and masters, experience liberation, but on separate sides of the Red Sea and out of relationship from one another? While I think the question of what liberation means to particular individuals or particular communities is very important, I wonder what it would be like if we also thought of liberation holistically, systemically, or structurally. In our story, the slave and the master are defined in relation to one another. You cannot be a slave without a master, nor can you be a master without a slave. What if we saw God's liberative work in this story as something that didn't simply lighten the load of slaves or made masters more accountable for the well-being of their slaves— but rather transformed the fundamental relationships that define slavery itself. Read this way, God's plagues and Moses' and Aaron's labor organizing aren't liberative because, at the end of the day, they were able to pass legislation that said Pharaoh had to treat the workers better. They didn't make a compromise for a pay raise or an increase in health benefits, while slaves and masters remained slaves and masters. God doesn't send Moses and Aaron to simply raise the taxes on the wealthy elite while leaving them in their positions of mastery. At the end of our story, those who were once slaves are no longer enslaved, and Master Pharaoh is no longer master to anyone. Their former way of being in relationship, the class structure, has ended, and to be clear i mean while i'm sure all of those things would have been helpful steps in the right direction given the suffering of the workers legislative reforms that left the master-slave relations untouched weren't the end game liberation seen in this light is a systemic transformation a revolution of relationships a total end to the structure of inequality in which both slaves and masters lived out their faith and embodied their desires. God's redemptive work ends the exploitative class structure of slavery. Might the same God of the disempowered and enslaved people of our story, the mysterious I am who I am, who sought the end of the unequal, undignified, master-slave relations between Pharaoh and the propertyless workers of Israel, also be interested in restoring mutual dignity and personhood to the disempowered workers of our day? Is it possible that God sees the employer-employee relations of capitalism as hierarchical and authoritarian, and that those who even directly participate in the production of profits— are excluded from the important decision-making that ends up affecting their livelihoods, their families, their neighborhoods, and communities. We're not even talking about power in the larger society yet. Might God have any interest in the inequality of power that defines the worker-capitalist-employee-employer relations of our places of work? I don't know. It may be something that we want to start wrestling with, In our faith communities. Next time, we're going to wrap up our conversation on capitalism's organization of our workplace relationships by talking about one reality in which anyone who is employed and those who are dependent upon someone else's employment are always at risk of experiencing. It's actually one reason why millions of people in the 20th century from very different contexts all over the world felt the need to end the power differentials of their capitalist workplaces. And that ever-hunting reality is unemployment.